of any interest to anyone. But to him, it's amazing because he's seeing the world through fresh eyes with a fresh perspective. He's understanding, comprehending things for the very first time. And tonight, we just encourage you to come with that same sort of mindset. The stories that we're going to be looking at, they're probably some of the oldest stories that humanity has. They're not new things. Nothing that we're going to be looking at is new. But if we can come with that mindset of looking at it with fresh eyes and a fresh perspective, maybe then we can learn something new. God can teach us something new. There's a guy that I really like listening to called Jordan Peterson, and I'm going to reference him a few times this evening. If you think that anything that I say tonight is insightful, it probably came from him. And he says, it's a classic mythological theme. The wise person is the person who finds what they lost in childhood and regains it. They return to the beginning and they don't fall backwards into childhood and unconsciousness, but instead voluntarily return to the state of childhood, well awake and determined to participate through truth in the manifestation of proper being. That sounds pretty fancy, doesn't it? But all it means is that tonight we're going to go back to the beginning and we're going to try and understand what happened in Eden. What is the truth that happened in Eden and understand how that impacts us. And if you're a Christian, that's what we want you to do. We encourage you to just look at it with fresh eyes, fresh perspective. If you're not a Christian, maybe this is the first time that you've heard some of these stories or you've heard them in passing and you're not quite sure what they mean or where they go. And again, we just pray that God is going to show you something and do something impactful in your life uh, this evening and over the next few weeks. So where are we on this journey that Nathan and Hope introduced to us? So Emily, if you just put the picture of the temple up. This is the temple. So this is the tabernacle, actually, and that's the precursor to the temple. So this is what the Israelites used to worship in the desert when they were in the wilderness. And you can see that's why it's actually made of cloth, because it needed to be portable. It's the precursor to the the permanent temple. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the bit that's kind of in the walls, but outside of that middle tent, which is the outer court. And we're also going to be looking at the bit outside the walls as well, because obviously, in that picture, you can see it's not just the temple. It's not just the tabernacle. There's also all that stuff everything else outside. And we're going to understand why we would want to even go into the outer court in the first place. What's on the outside of the outer court and why would that push us towards wanting to go into it and finding God? To understand why we would want to do that, we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden and hopefully you've picked up that that's the kind of vibe that we're going for this evening. So the Garden of Eden probably one of the most famous phrases or names from the Bible. I think we've probably all heard of it. It's this idea of paradise. It's the idea that a lion with all its ferociousness can lie down with a lamb and they won't tear each other apart. And we're told that God placed Adam, the man that he created, in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 2, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right at the start of the Bible, straight away, these kind of two themes that are basically the center of the biblical story, the idea that there's one tree or one path that leads to life and one tree or one path that leads to death is right there, right at the beginning in the Bible. And just note for a second, and we'll come back to this, but the tree that leads to death, it, make, it would make sense that it was called the tree of death because it's the tree of life. It would make sense surely that that was called the tree of death, but it's not called the tree of death. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the reason why that is, is because the tree itself isn't the thing that leads to death. It's the act of picking from the tree that leads to death. And we'll explore that a little bit more in a bit. So moving on to Genesis 2.16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God said to Adam, you can't eat from that tree. There's just one tree, you can't eat from it. And then I'd never really noticed it, but this before. Maybe you wise Christians amongst us had noticed this, but I hadn't noticed that God then, only when he'd commanded Adam not to eat from the tree, did he then say it's not suitable for man to be alone. Man needs a helper. I think God was recognizing straight away, humans, we've got that infallibility already. He's recognizing that. And he recognized we need a helper to help us to avoid doing the thing that he asked us not to do. And that's a powerful position. Anyone that's got close friends in the room knows that a bit of accountability, having a friend that spurs you on to do the right thing is really powerful. That is a really powerful position that the woman is putting over Adam straight away and Adam over Eve as well. And unfortunately, the serpent recognizes that that's a powerful position as well. And the serpent wants to get in, get hold of Eve so that she can influence Adam. So in Genesis 3, the serpent says, did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's the same thing as what Ezra says to me and Em when we tell him off. It's exactly the same principle. He's saying, did you really mean that? The serpent saying, did you really, did God really say you must not eat? from the tree. He knows full well that's not what God said. He knows full well God didn't say that you can't eat from any tree. He said a specific tree, but he wants to sow doubt into Eve's mind straight away. He probably also knows that Eve maybe got the commandment secondhand through Adam. We don't know this, he doesn't say, but when Eve was created, God had already given the commandment and then he doesn't issue it again. So maybe she's got secondhand information. She doesn't really know what God said. So he's playing on that doubt, the serpent. So Eve gets confused and she responds, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it. But again, if you've been listening, you know straight away, that's not what God said either. God didn't say that either. He specified the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say the tree in the middle of the garden. And he didn't say anything about touching it. And I think what that's saying is when the serpent, when the enemy tries to trick us and tell us that God means something that he doesn't, he makes it so that all we see is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we look at the middle of the garden where the two trees are, all we see is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All we see is the sin. All we see is the disobedience because the serpent tricks us into thinking that's what we actually want. The serpent's already sown doubt. We're already in a mess. It's exacerbated by the fact that the woman doesn't know. And the serpent responds, he presses on, he says, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And at the end of the day, who doesn't want to be like God? Who wouldn't want that sort of knowledge, that sort of power? So the woman saw the fruit was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the fact that their eyes were opened at this point shows that in some way before this, their eyes were closed. They weren't necessarily bumping around and stuff. They weren't blind, but in some ways their eyes were closed. And what were their eyes closed to? When we think of the fact that the people recognize that we that they were naked often we think of that in sort of like a sexual shame connotation they were hiding themselves because they had that shame but maybe it's deeper than that maybe it's the idea that actually we recognize at that moment the knowledge of good and evil is the recognition that we as humans are vulnerable that we are vulnerable imagine or picture a zebra in the Serengeti 
and imagine that there's a bunch of lions led down near the zebra. Because the zebra in some way has its eyes closed, it doesn't recognize, it can't comprehend that those lions that are led down become lions that stand up and will eat it. And in the same way, our eyes were closed in some senses to the idea of our vulnerability. They were closed to understanding what that meant. And then all of a sudden, boom, we recognize we're vulnerable. Not only do we recognize that we're vulnerable, but we recognize that if we're vulnerable, then other people must be vulnerable too. And if that means, if they're vulnerable, then it means that we can hurt them. It means that we can enact on that vulnerability. We can become a risk and we are at risk. To me, that makes sense as being the knowledge of good and evil. So what did Adam and Eve do when they stumbled upon this earth-shattering realization? Well, they hid. When, when we tell Ezra off, when we first started telling him off, when he was a little bit younger, the first thing that he did was he ran to us. He gave us a big cuddle. He was crying. I'd probably literally just told him off. He cried his eyes out and he ran straight to me because he knows that I'm his safe place. He knows that I'm his protector. Even though I've just shouted at him, he was running towards me. But now he started to do that thing where when we catch him in the act of doing something, he starts running off. So we'll get into the kitchen and he'll have a bit of food in his hand or whatever. And we'll say, no, you shouldn't be eating that. And he'll sprint through the lounge and he'll go and sit down and eat the food. And in the same way, Adam and Eve hid from God. They knew their actions had consequences. They recognized that they had done something that was disobedient. What's God's response? God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And I just find this response so interesting because if it was about the knowledge that they had gained, if God was worried that humans now had the same knowledge that he had, then he would surely be in a panic. He'd be panicking about that, thinking, why is it that the humans now know what I've got? But what does he actually say? He focuses on, he says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He focuses and shifts the focus back to the idea that the important thing here is that Adam and Eve were disobedient. It's not about the knowledge they gained, it's about the fact that they were disobedient. And we really need to grasp this for where we're heading. It's not that God wanted humanity to live in blissful ignorance with our eyes closed to all the dangers of the world or bubble wrappers from the dangers. We see in the story that the serpent literally had the power to lead Adam and Eve towards choosing the thing that led to death. If that's not danger, then I don't know what is. Clearly God didn't want to just bubble wrap us. But his intention is that we're so wrapped up in who he is. It's the counter to what the serpent did by showing Eve all you want to see is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's exactly the opposite. He wants us to be so wrapped up in who he is that when we face that choice of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life, we choose the tree of life every time. The proper way for humanity to be with God is to live in obedience and trust. And often we feel uneasy at the idea that God is a God that just wants us to obey. But again, as parents and as people who have witnessed kids and parents in the room, we know that as parents, we know better than our children. We know that our responsibility is to help them to live in the right way in the world. And in the same way, if we can't get our heads around the fact that God who created everything might know better than us mere humans, then yeah, where are we at? God knows better than us. He wants us to live in obedience with him. So God then curses the serpent. He recognizes the deceptive role that the serpent played. And then he curses the woman and he curses the man. And it's actually only the man that, says, that he says that broke the command. 
He says, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see at this point that the tree of life, the tree that leads to life and eternity is barred from humanity. But just notice it wasn't God's response to destroy Eden. He didn't decide at this point, okay, I'm going to get rid of the idea of this paradise on earth. He just kicked humans out of it. The paradise still existed at this point. And this moment is the moment that we refer to as the fall. It's the moment that we refer to as, you know, it all going wrong for humanity. We believe that this moment is the reason why we all have that natural inclination to run towards the things that we know that we shouldn't, to run towards disobedience. And it brings about the famous verses that we see in Romans 5 and Romans 3. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. We've all turned away from God. We've all got that natural inclination to run away and be disobedient to him. So what does this world look like now we're on the outside of Eden? What does the world look like? Well, when we ask ourselves that question, we've just got to look around really, don't we? I'm not a doom and gloom type of guy. I'm quite an optimistic guy. But you can't deny that this world is not the paradise that God intended for us to live in. There's death, there's destruction, there's pain, there's perverseness. We look at the situation that's been in the news a lot recently in Ukraine and all the other wars that are going on around the world, the civil war in Yemen. We think at the extreme prioritization of the self above everything else. We think about all the pain, all of the difficult situations that we've gone. We can easily recognize that this world is not paradise as God intended. There's a famous philosopher called Friedrich Nietzsche who got very gloomy about all of this. And he's quoted as saying, God is dead. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Basically saying that as a result of the enlightenment, humans had got so far, they'd got so far progressed that they didn't need God anymore. And he was an atheist actually. So maybe he would be celebrating the fact that God was dead, the fact that we didn't need him anymore. But actually he believed that this, the belief system that Christianity brought in was a really important foundation for our morals in society. He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. He believed in removing the idea of God from our society. It would put people at risk of meaningless, meaninglessness. They would ask themselves, what's the meaning of life now? What's the point of life without God? And I think we can probably all recognize that in people that we've met and maybe in ourselves. He wouldn't have been surprised by the events that have plagued Europe in the last century or so. And he rejected the ideology of God, but he still recognized that a world without God is not a nice world to be in. And as Christians, we would say, actually, let's go one step further. You're so close, Nietzsche. You're so close. But the reason why that is the case is because these things are actually true. The world without God is a nasty place to be because it's actually true that God exists and is providing the moral basis for us. We see in the Bible that God's the sustainer of the universe. Everything was created through him and sustained by him. And we're not tapping into that in the same way anymore. God's still the sustainer. God's still the sustainer, but we're not tapping into that because we're on the outside of Eden. And this is all kind of academic, but 
we all know the pain and the reality of life. I used to work in Southport as a pastoral support worker, and the people that I would go in and visiting were ex-homeless guys or people struggling with addictions or mental health issues. And it always struck me when I went to their houses or their flats how so often they had the curtains closed. They had everything in their flat covered in darkness. For me, the world outside Eden is a world in which darkness becomes a friend and light becomes the thing that is fearful. Why were these guys who I met who struggled with mental health and addiction, why were they hiding? Why did they have the curtains closed and everything covered in darkness? It's because the pain that would be reflected back at them if the light was shone upon them was too much for them to bear. They didn't want to see who they truly were. They didn't want to see the uncleanliness in their surroundings. And that reflected back at them who they were in that that moment. And we might say, well, that's just people with addictions. That's just people who are struggling, who are ex-homeless or whatever. It might be easy for us to think like that. But the reality of it is, is if we really stop and think and look at ourselves, allow ourselves to be covered in the light, there's definitely things amongst all of us that we would want to hide from, that we wouldn't want to be exposed. The scary thing in some way about the light is that he shows us who we could be and he makes us realize that we're not there yet. We're not who we could be. When we're we're presented this God that's so powerful and amazing, we're not who we could be and it applies to us all. And all of this drives us to a choice because it's a bit gloomy, isn't it? It's a bit depressing. It all drives us to a choice. We can either wallow in that and and wallow in that gloominess. We can either run and continue to hide from all the pain or we can run towards God. And the temple, the tabernacle, was basically set up as a way for people to be able to come back to God, to return to God, to come into his presence. The outer court, which we're looking at tonight, was the idea where um, sacrifice took place and repentance took place. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow is facing up to who we are and our sin and leading us to repentance so that we can be made right with God. Worldly sorrow is just wallowing in that sin, allowing it to cause more pain. And you can think of that when you've got a really tough situation that's going on. And we believe that all the negative stuff, all the rubbish of the world has come into the world through that moment in Eden, through that fall moment. When that's going on, when something's, when something's plaguing you, I don't know about you guys, but certainly when I'm facing that, sometimes all I want to do is smash up some plates or maybe I want to turn inwards and just focus on myself and forget to care about the people that I love that are around me. That's the worldly sorrow. It's focusing on the pain and just allowing it to cause more pain. So, We've got this choice, we can run towards the outer court, we can enter into God's presence or we can, or we can hide. In the outer court, they use sacrifice as a way to offset, offset the punishment for disobeying God. The idea is that disobey, disobeying God leads us to be un, made unright with God and we need to make, be made right with God. And I was just going to be talking tonight basically about sacrifice and repentance from the point of view of acknowledging who we are, sacrificing and repenting, and not really getting too much into the idea that that then leads us to live a good life. But when I went to look in the Bible at all the verses about sacrifice in the Old Testament particularly, almost every single time that sacrifice is mentioned, it also mentions something about how we should live good lives in obedience. So 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? Psalm 40, verse six, sacrifice and offering you did not desire 
but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin you did not require. Psalm 51, 6, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Proverbs 2, 3, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And it just goes on. We see back in the story in Eden with Adam and Eve, it was all about obedience. Sacrifice in the outer court, it wasn't the end goal. It was a way to temporarily make ourselves right with God. But more than that, it was a way to point us back towards a life lived in obedience to God. The things that people were sacrificing, the the lambs, the sheep, the bulls, these were people's actual wealth and livelihood. They didn't want to sacrifice these things. So it was a reminder that we should be living lives in obedience with God. But humans are still human. We would come, we would sacrifice, we would make ourselves right with God, and then we would go away and we'd disobey again. The theory works. Sacrifice works as a system to make us right with God. But when humans are in control of it, it doesn't work. It becomes broken. It becomes messy. We need a permanent solution that not not only focuses on making us right with God, but also that God is in charge and in control of. And of course, we see that perfect solution in Jesus. Jesus came into the world, he humbled himself. He faced up to who he was without God because he was fully human. He did the same as what we can do tonight, which is facing up to who we are without God. And he sacrificed himself for all of us once and for all. He is the perfect solution and the true way into God's presence. And he mirrors the journey into the outer court. The Israelites, to get into the outer court, they had to go through a gate. And in the gate, we see a few things that mirror who Jesus is. We see blue, which is the color of the sky, representing a heavenly nature, which we know Jesus had. We see purple, the color of royalty, showing a kingship. Jesus is the king of kings. We see scarlet, portraying redemption. Jesus redeemed us all at the cross. And we see fine linen, showing the highest human virtues. Because when Jesus was on earth, when he was fully human, he displayed the highest human virtues. When he looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he looked at the tree of life, he chose the tree of life. He didn't choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus flipped it all on its head. God might easily say, I made it super easy for you in Eden. All I told you to do is not eat from one tree. You've got all these trees that you can eat from. Just don't eat from that one. I've made it easy for you. And humanity still chose to eat from that one tree. Jesus comes and he flips it from his, on its head and he says, rather than all those trees that you've got to avoid and this one that you need to not eat from and all these trees that you can, I'm giving you one tree that you need to choose from to receive life. Just one. That's the cross. And we still make a mess of it. We still say, well, surely there can't only be one tree that leads to life. Surely there's a load of other ways to get into heaven. Jesus said, there's just one tree. There's just one tree that we've got to look to, and that's the cross, to remind ourselves of his sacrifice, to remind ourselves of his redemption. So how do we grab hold of this together tonight? Well, first of all, we humble ourselves and we repent. We say we recognize that there's something in all of us, a tendency to run away from God, to disobey God. And we recognize who we truly are and we acknowledge who he is. God's patient with us. He gives us time. 2 Peter 3.9 says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So let's do that together this evening. Let's acknowledge it. And, you know, the Christians amongst us, people that have got saved already, you'll have done this a hundred times. You'll have acknowledged who you are and acknowledged who God is, but let's do it again. And if you're not a Christian, maybe this is the first time that you're ever really facing up to who that is and who God is and how powerful he is. Hopefully that's a beautiful experience for you as well. And what we're going to do is we're going to do something physical to display what we've done mentally. And if you reach under your seats, you've got a piece of paper on the floor in the shape of an apple and a pen. And what we're going to do is we're just going to put some, we're going to have Andrew come and do some music. And uh, you're going to write down something on that piece of paper. You're going to write down, you're going to think about what's been going on in your life. Maybe there's something that you know Has everyone got one? (laughs) Maybe there's something you know that's going on in your life at the minute where you've been disobeying God or where you've been running back towards sin. Maybe there's something that, you know, there's some particular pain that's been caused by that or whatever. You're going to write that down on this piece of paper and that's going to symbolize all of the rubbish that's inside each one of us. Just one word, one sentence, whatever it is, you're going to write down that piece of paper. And then in your own time, when you've written it down, when you've done the work with God, you're going to stand up and you'll have seen as you came in that there were some fire pits outside. You're going to walk outside to those fire pits and you're going to chuck that piece of paper into the fire and you're going to let it burn. And we're going to say that tonight, once again, we're drawing a line in the sand. We're not going back to disobedience. We're going to live a life in obedience with God. We're going to live the life that God intended us to live when he created us and when he placed us in Eden. So just take that time. Take the space. In your own time, write down on your paper, head outside, shove it in the fire, and then come back in and let's worship together.